I should like to call your attention this evening to that uh, third chapter of the book of Genesis, which we read together at the beginning, and which you remember begins like this. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, I call your attention, I say, to the message of this chapter. In order that we may consider together what is the essential message of this book, which we call the Bible. We are met together like this because I take it that in various ways we have felt the need of doing so and we have felt that it is right for us to do so. We are met together because we are all conscious of certain problems in this world. Problems in our own personal lives and problems in the life of the world at large. There is no such thing as complete and perfect and entire happiness. There is no one without difficulties. Everyone knows what it is to be weary and tired and to be disappointed, to be, have to struggle. We are all familiar with all these things. We find uh, conflict within ourselves. We find conflict round and about us. Now that is the experience of every human being. There is no such thing, I say, as absolute perfect peace or happiness. There is always a fly in the ointment. There is no such thing as unmixed pleasure. Life we have all discovered, and it doesn't matter how young we are, we have discovered at any rate this, that life does involve us in difficulties, problematical situations. And we all are conscious of this and have a feeling that we were not meant for it. We don't like it, we want to be delivered from it. That is ultimately the cause of all questing in the life of men, all searching for some solution to the problem of life and of living. And I say we are undoubtedly here this evening because of all that. If there were no problems and no difficulties, if there were no such things as heart searchings and disappointments, if it were not that we were all somehow or another seeking for some way out of some impasse, some difficulty, some problem, I think it's quite certain that we would not be here. Very well then, we are, I say, face to face with all that, and we are not only conscious of it in ourselves, we are conscious of the same thing in the world at large and in general. We are always being reminded of this. You can't pick up a newspaper without seeing it. You never hear the news on the wireless without being conscious of it. Life is, is full of difficulties and of problems and of perplexities. Quite apart from major world wars, there always seems to be some misunderstanding and some discord. People working at cross purposes, pulling against one another, rivalries, jealousies, groups, sects, parties, and so on and so forth. And thus the whole world seems to be nothing 
but a repetition on a grand scale of what we all are aware of and experience in our personal lives. That is why it has often been said that man is a sort of microcosm. He, in and of himself, is a picture of what is true of the whole cosmos. There seems to be this clash, and as we've been reminded in our reading tonight, and as the poet has put it, we see nature red in tooth and claw. There seems to be struggle, struggle for existence, struggle for power, struggle for mastery. And thus, in the world, there is a great deal of tribulation and of trial, of wretchedness and of unhappiness. Now, that, I say, is the given situation. And uh, we meet together to consider that. Now, that is an important statement. Because there are still people who seem to think that this whole question of religion is something purely intellectual. There are some people who think that uh, this uh, book called the Bible and all it's got to say uh, really is very remote from life. That, of course, if you are interested in that sort of thing, you can take it up as you may take up some other kind of study, music or literature or anything else, but it's a kind of hobby. It's something that you do in a detached manner, something that you can do more or less as a spectator, something that you do in your leisure time. There are people who hold that view, that religion, Christianity, is far from being practical and is thus entirely divorced from life. Well, now I say that that is a complete fallacy. And I want to try to show this evening uh, what a terrible fallacy it is. There is nothing in the world this evening that is so practical as the teaching of this book. Indeed, the whole purpose of this book is to come with, to us with its instruction and its enlightenment and teaching concerning the very situation in which we find ourselves. That's what it's for. That's what it's about. It's the most human book in the world from that standpoint. Because all along it is dealing with men and women. You see, the Bible is, uh, in a sense, a baffling book to many people for that reason. They seem to think of it, as I've said, as just some kind of theoretical textbook upon a certain point of view or line of thought. Well, it does contain massive thought, mighty philosophy, exceptional teaching, and yet, you know, the whole time it is also a history book. It is a book of history. And that is why you can't get away from men and women, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, David and other kings, Jesus of Nazareth, apostles with names, Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, men. And it keeps on putting its truth to us in terms of these people, what they did and what they said and what happened to them and so forth. Now, it does that, it seems to me, just to bring home to us this very point that I'm emphasizing, that it is a practical book about life. It's a textbook of the soul. It comes to us with a message about the very position in which we find ourselves. Look at it either as an individual or look at it in terms of the world. Are you unhappy? Did you come here tonight because you're unhappy? Well, the Bible talks to you about your unhappiness. The question is, why are you unhappy? What's the cause of your unhappiness? Why should anybody be unhappy? 
Why shouldn't life be a perpetual holiday? Why do we have to work with the sweat of our brow? And so on. Those are the questions with which the Bible deals. Why do things go wrong? Why is there illness and sickness? Why should there be death? These are the questions. And you see, these are the major problems of life and of existence. Now, how important it is that we should realize this and realize that this is the starting point. You see, people so often when they come to discuss religion or when they come into the realm of these things, ah, now then they say, this is going to be interesting. What about miracles? You see, and off you start at once, but science says this and that. And there you are, discussing something far away from yourself, entirely theoretical. That isn't how the Bible approaches you. The Bible comes to us, I say, exactly where we are. Speaks to us in the very position that we are at this moment. Indeed, it always insists upon doing that. It says, I'm interested in you. And I want to talk to you about yourself. It's not going to be a detached theoretical discussion about some pints of philosophy. We are going to talk about you and about myself, about all of us in this world and the whole state of the world in which we live. Very well. Now, I want to show you what the Bible has got to say about all this. Because, you see, in the last analysis, there are only two views about life and the world and why things are as they are. We either accept this view or else we accept some other view. I don't care what the other view is, but it's either this or something else. That is the classification which the Bible recognizes. Its message, all other messages. Because all the other messages are not based upon the Bible, well, therefore, they belong to the same category. This is not in series with the others. This stands absolutely alone. It uh, claims uh, an utter uniqueness. It uh, makes claims for itself which no other book in the world makes. It stands absolutely alone. I'm not going to stop with that tonight because I rather want to give you its message, but where I dispose to do so, I could give you the proofs which the Bible itself provides for its unique and divine inspiration. And I could give you further proofs which we can deduce on top of that, from that, and from the subsequent course of human history. But tonight I'm just asserting it. And my assertion is this. That the only view of men and of life in the world tonight which rarely meets the facts, which explains why we are individually as we are at this moment, why the world is as it is, and why history in the past has always been what it has been, I am here to assert that the Bible alone has an adequate explanation for all that. And that if you take up any other view, you will find it will fail you at some point or another. This, I say, claims to be an absolutely unique book. A book given by God through men in various ways, and here brought into one. And uh, what it does, of course, is that it gives us an account of the things that are vital and primary and fundamental. Now, I want to put all this in general this evening. I'm doing this quite deliberately. The Bible is full of a great mass of details. 
And generally speaking, I take one verse perhaps, or even less than that, and try and expound it. It's right, we must do that. We must always do that. And yet I believe it is good at times that we should look at the message as a whole. For there is a very real danger of our missing the wood because of the trees. I find increasingly that there are many people who really have never seen the whole case of the Bible. They've stumbled at some particular thing. They're stopping at one point. They've missed the whole because they're over-immersed in a part. They've looked so much at individual trees that, as I say, they haven't seen the wood. Now, I'm going to put it in terms of the wood this evening. The general statement of the Bible, as it meets us in life as it is this evening, and as it speaks to us. And as I do so, I think we shall see that it all along the line and everywhere is in blank contradiction to what is so generally and so popularly believed and assumed at the present time. Now, there are certain things which the Bible tells us are simply absolute essentials if we are to understand ourselves and understand the world in which we live. What has it got to tell us? Well, this book of Genesis really, in the very first chapters, puts the whole case. You've got the complete Bible view of history and of men here in just a few chapters. Indeed, in the first three chapters, you needn't go any further. It's all there. Well, what is it? What am I to make of life? How am I to understand myself, my problems, my disappointments, my unhappiness? What is it? How do I face all that? That's your question, isn't it? And a perfectly fair question, a right question. What am I to say about it? Well, the Bible, in a most extraordinary way, starts like this. It says, in the beginning, God. It starts with God. And you see, at once, I've shown you the great ultimate cleavage with respect to these views of life. Because of necessity, before I begin to ask any questions about myself and my problems and so on, I, I ought to ask questions like this. Well, I, I'm concerned about myself and my problems. I'm here in this world. Yes, but uh, where does the world come from? Where have I come from? What, what is life itself? What's the origin? The, the tragedy of the world today is, you see, that it starts too near with its problem. Oh, let me quote again the poet who says, the world is too much with us. That's, he says, that's our trouble. We are right in the midst of it and it's too much with us. We can't see it because we are too near it. There are times when to see a thing, you've got to get away from it. What do they know of England who only England know? If you want to go to know England, truly travel abroad. If you want to appreciate your own country, go to another. If you simply stay here and walk about the streets of London, in the end you'll know very little about London. You see, you want this larger perspective, this distant view at times. You want to see the thing as a whole. Don't merely concentrate at once on your problem. Go back, put it into its context. I must resist the temptation to elaborate that. But you know, that to me is very largely of the very essence of this contract. 
You go and consult mathematicians, go and consult chemists, analytical chemists particularly, or anybody who's having to transact and to deal with problems in these various realms, and you ask them, how do you face, how do you tackle a problem? And I think you'll find that invariably they'll tell you that they never start directly with the thing itself. They first of all put it into a group and into a larger group. Take a chemist trying to discover what a given substance is. How does he do it? Well, he has certain broad tests first of all. He's going to eliminate a number of things and so he narrows it down and down and down until he comes to this. A physician diagnosing a patient has to do exactly the same thing. He mustn't immediately concentrate over much on the particular thing about which the patient is talking. No, the way to discover that is to start on a broader base, on a bigger canvas, as it were, and gradually narrow it down. You put certain things out of court, and you then put others out of court. I once heard a very notable physician saying that the way in which uh, he diagnosed the patient was this. He listened to what the patient had got to say. And then uh, he examined the patient. Well, now he's got a number of data. He's got the patient's symptoms and complaints. In addition to that, he's got uh, his own uh, investigation and his discoveries. Then he says, what I do is this. I say to myself, now what are the possible things that can include and cover all this? And then he says, I put up those possibilities as if I were putting up a number of skittles. And then he said, I stand away back and I take up the balls and I throw them at the skittles and the skittle that's left standing is the right diagnosis. That was his method. Well, I'm just trying to tell you that it's the same method that should be employed in this whole question of your particular personal problems and mine. I say, the Bible does it like this, you see. You come to me and say, now I'm unhappy. I'm conscious of a conflict. I'm in a crisis. What's the matter with me? And the Bible says, in the beginning, God. As if it's forgotten all about you. But it hasn't forgotten all about you. The only way to understand you is to start with God. And the Bible, you see, takes us there right at the very beginning. And if we're not clear about this, we'll go wrong everywhere else. For it is a vital concern to every one of us to know whether there is a God or not. Is everything that is the result of the activity of God, or is there some such thing as a blind, impersonal force, or energy, or power at the back of everything? Am I face to face with a being and with a person? Or am I the victim of some blind chance, some accidental meeting together of some atoms or some powers which are without person and without mind, without reason, without understanding? Is it all blind or is it all purposeful? You see, you've got to come to that. The diagnosis depends very essentially upon this. Now the Bible there at the very beginning starts with that. 
Ah, yes, but you see, the modern panaceas never do that, do they? No, no, the psychologist starts with you and ends with you, suggests things to you, uh, does certain things to you, and it's you the whole time, tries to bring forces and factors to play upon you, and so on. But, you see, he started with you, as I say, and he's ended with you. And so do all the others. They start with men, they end with men, and that's why the world is as it is. You can't understand life, says the Bible, unless you realize that there at the back of everything, before everything, is God. We can't define God. We can't understand God. Men by searching cannot find out God. The world by wisdom knew not God. The mightiest Greek philosophers couldn't attain unto him. But the Bible asserts him. It, it says this is the revelation that God has given of himself. Now, my friends, you see, we've got to agree about this before we can go any further. We either agree that this great eternal God has been pleased to tell us things about himself and to reveal and manifest himself here is the revelation, and it's in nature and creation also, or else we don't accept it. But the Bible tells us that God is, and that God is eternal. Oh, you can't understand that. Your mind and my mind are too small. We can't conceive of God nor of eternity. We are so impure that we can't imagine a being of whom it can be said that he is light and in him is no darkness at all. That he is a consuming fire, that he is absolutely holy in every respect, that he knows all and sees all and is all-powerful. Our minds boggle. We don't understand. We're never meant to understand. If we could understand, we'd be bigger than God. If my mind could go around all these things and I could put them on paper in my little philosophy, I'd be the God and God would be a subject to my can handle. But the Bible says no. It says, take off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the ground whereon thou standest is holy ground. We are confronted by one who addresses us saying, I am that I am, Jehovah, the eternal God. Now you see, if that is true, it's going to make a difference all along the line, isn't it? It's going to make a difference everywhere. You can't reason with blind force. You can't pray to energy. You can't put up your case and voice your plea to some great mass which is impersonal. But if God be God, and if God is, my whole outlook is changed at once. God is personal. I am. God is Father. God says there is a Son. There is a Holy Spirit. Three persons in glory. That's the beginning. But let's go on. The Bible tells us that the world came into being because that eternal God made it. That God is the creator. You see, we are still talking about you, aren't we? Yes, but we are not just looking at you and your symptoms. We are looking at your whole context. We are asking where have you come from? How have you come into being? What is it all about? 
Ah, you say, but it's this pain I want to get rid of. Yes, my dear friend, I want to get rid of your pain, but I want to make a diagnosis first. I'm not here to issue an opiate. I'm not here simply to give you a drug. We're not here simply to sing and to persuade ourselves that all is well and feel a little bit happier. Religion is not escapism. It's everything else that is is escapism. This is realism. This is realistic. So he tells you that God made the world. It asserts creation. It says that that God made everything out of nothing. He said, let there be light and there was light. And he made everything that is out of nothing by his own power. And he made it absolutely perfect. He looked at it and he saw that it was good and it was called paradise. I think you see again that this is a very vital matter as we are considering our problem in this world. Is the world God's creation? Or is it the result of some impersonal, accidental, evolutionary process? Now you've got to believe one or the other of these two ideas. There is no other possibility. Either you believe the, the, the talk that those gases suddenly solidified. You believe that they formed some primitive slime. Nobody knows how, know where the gases came from and so on. You either believe that it's all something like that. And that though there is no mind, no understanding, no law, no order, no purpose in anything, that somehow or another these blind hidden forces have so worked and manipulated and reacted against one another that from a very primitive kind of indefined life you've come up to man with his brain and with his power. You've come up to the complexity of the flower, the extraordinary instrument which we call the eye, and all the astounding and amazing things that happen in nature and creation. The birds are migrating, they're leaving this country and going back to the warmer climes. What makes them do it? Why do they do it? How do they do it? That's a problem. Now, is it all accident? Is it all chance? Or is there a mind, a creator at the back of it all? You see, you can't begin really to discuss your problem, your personal problem, your personal need and difficulty, truly and well, unless you somehow take all that in. And the Bible makes you take all that in. It reasons with you about all that. The Bible doesn't say, now just come along, uh, come to Jesus and all is well. Not at all. It starts in Genesis. It starts with creation. It wants you to know and to understand why you are what you are and why it is that God is proposing what he proposes. So the Bible tells us that the world is not accidental. It tells us that history is not without a beginning. It tells us that there was a time when there wasn't a world and there wasn't history, but that God deliberately, according to the counsel of his own eternal will, decided to create and form a world and to start the historical process. The Bible asserts all that. And you and I are in history, and it behoves us to know something about this very process. God made the world, it was perfect, it was paradise, he set it going upon its course. 
Very well, let's come on to the next thing. We are coming nearer to ourselves. The next thing, of course, is men. We find ourselves members of the human race. Oh yes, I'm very concerned about myself. I'm an individualist and I want the solution to my problems. Yes, but I can't help knowing that there are all these other people exactly like myself in this great world with its teeming masses. Man! The proper study of mankind is man. And I'm suggesting that it's equally true to say that the proper study of men is mankind. Both propositions are true. Well, now then, where does men come from? Well, again, you see, you confront this same great cleavage. According to the biblical assertion, men is a special creation of God. I'm asserting it. The Bible tells us that. The Bible tells us that God made men in his own image. It doesn't say that about anything else. It says that about men. In other words, when I'm confronting this modern world with all its tragedy and all its pain and my own difficulties and problems, I say, what am I? What is man? I say, there was a time when man was perfect. And that the world was not always as it is now. Man was made in the image of God. Man was made upright. Man was made righteous. Man was made holy. He was made by God, for God. He spoke to God. He walked with God. He communed with God. He enjoyed God. He lived with God. He was upright, I say, and there was that in him which could respond to God and his life was one of paradise and of perfect bliss. And in your attempt to understand your problems and to solve them, you either believe that or else you believe that man, after all, is nothing but an animal or a reasoning animal, if you like, an animal endowed with a higher reason. You believe that the only difference between him and the other animals is that the forepart of his brain has become more complex and involved and highly developed. The same essential brain is this addition. But man never was perfect. And that he is as he is now because he has not yet reached perfection, but that he's evolving and advancing and developing in that direction. That he's worked his way up slowly through the long and the countless millennia of time, which cannot be proved, until he's arrived at his present state and condition. And that he is slowly improving and developing, is becoming better, getting rid of things and sloughing off things that are harmful and inimical to his well-being. And that again, in many, many, many millennia, he will have arrived at perfection and will have solved all his problems and there will be no more troubles. It's one or the other. You either believe that you, that human nature that you possess and have, has come out of the hands of God and was made by God for himself. Or else, I say, you take that other view, that purely materialistic view. And man is nothing 
but an animal and a creature. But the Bible, I say, asserts that that is wrong, that man was so made by God and placed in paradise and there lived this life of perfect enjoyment. Very well, though. We now come to the very center of our problem. If all that is true, then why am I what I am? Why is the world what it is? Why the unhappiness and the misery and the wretchedness? That's our problem, isn't it? We've seen what we are essentially and originally. Why are we what we are now? Now here comes the great divide. You notice what the Bible says. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Thou shalt not eat of the tree, of every tree of the garden? You know, people say we are not interested in doctrine. I'm not interested in your theology, says the modern man. I want a little bit of help. I want a little bit of comfort. Can't you say something to lift me out of my trouble? And there you are talking your theology. My dear friend, it is only as you believe this theology that you'll ever, ever know deliverance. The biblical account of men and of the world and of history is theological which means that it starts with God, is the science of the knowledge of God and of all in relationship to God. And this is what it says at this point. That into this perfect world made by God in which man was there in this state of paradise, there entered another power, another force. There came something that was opposed to God and opposed to men and which was bent upon one thing only and that was the wrecking and the destruction of God's perfect work. Now we come into a realm that no man can possibly understand and the Bible doesn't give me ultimate explanations. What it does tell me is this. That there is a world beside this a world which is spiritual, a world of spirits. That God not only made men, but that he made creatures which are called angels, which are not physical beings, but are spiritual beings, and God endowed them with great and notable and remarkable powers, and he used them as his servants, these great, powerful, angelic beings. God made them. But one of these, we are told, rebelled against God and persuaded others to follow him. And he defied God and he stood against God. And God smote him and he fell. And what the Bible tells us is that this terrible, dread, spiritual power called Satan or the devil entered into this world and God's perfect creation and through tempting the men and the woman that God had made, brought to pass everything that you and I know. Well, now let me put that more generally in putting it in this way. Why are things as they are? Why should any one of us ever desire that which is harmful for us? Why should we ever want to do things that we know to be absolutely wrong? 
Why is there jealousy and envy and discord and misunderstanding? Why are there lust and passion? Why are homes broken and marriages broken? Why do little children suffer? Why all the agony and the pain of life? Now, you see, that's the problem, isn't it? That's your problem, that's mine. Well, here's the biblical answer. It is because there is this other power in this world that has dragged men down. This suggestion, this evil, headed up in this person called Satan and the devil who came and tempted Adam and Eve and got them down and led to the fall that man has not is no longer what he once was and has become something entirely different. That is the biblical explanation. And you'll find it in the Bible from beginning to end. You will find that when the Son of God came into this world, he was tempted of the devil in the wilderness for 40 days. He struggled with him. He tried to get him down. He came and said, if thou be the Son of God, do this, do that. I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world, if only you'll bow down and worship me. That's what you and I are confronted with. And you see, my friend, if that is true, how hopelessly and utterly inadequate are all the remedies that are being offered to mankind this evening apart from the Bible. If that is the business, if there are these unseen powers, if there are what the Apostle Paul calls the principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places, if we are confronted with all that, well then we need a power that is greater than that. But the Bible tells us that as the result of that original sin and fall of men, that we all of us are in the grip of this evil power. That we are dominated by the devil, the god of this world. And that it is he who comes to us and tempts us. Haven't we all experienced it? The moment you wake up in the morning, before you've had time to start thinking... Thoughts come to you. They're there. They're insinuated. Sometimes ugly, foul thoughts. Unworthy thoughts. Where have they come from? First thing in the morning, last thing at night. You may have been reading your Bible. You may be on your knees in prayer. And you're conscious of being attacked. And there are things that drag you down. And suggestions and insinuations. Where does it all come from? Here is where it all comes from, says the Bible. And if this is true, how vital that I should realize it. Satan and evil. Original sin and the fall of men. Man is a victim of evil powers greater than himself. It's either that you know, or else you take this other view which is so popular today, that really the trouble with man is that he hasn't had, as I say, sufficient time in order to shake off these negative parts of himself. that it's because there's still a good deal of the beast in him. He's come up through the beast, you see. He's gone through the various stages, the fish, the reptile, the mammal, and so on. And as these animals are the creatures of lusts and passions and fight one another and are self-centered and selfish, man is still like that. Of course, we are told he's getting better, and every year he lives, as mankind lives, it will get better and better. We're all together better now than they were 2,000 years ago. But you say, what about people fighting in a war? Oh, well, of course, uh, we haven't had enough time yet. 
What about a man coveting another man's wife? They did that 2,000 years ago. They're still doing it. Where's your improvement? Where's the advance? I don't see it. I see things exactly as they were. I go back and read this early story. I see a man called Cain, jealous of his brother, and so jealous of him that he murdered him. I see men still doing it, in spite of the fact that that is probably at least nearly 6,000 years ago. You see, my friends, the Bible is realistic, isn't it? The Bible tells us that we are what we are and things are what they are because of this thing called sin that comes from Satan, that comes from evil, that comes from opposition to God and enmity against God and man turning himself into a king and into a lord and asserting himself. Man's rebellion against God. That's the explanation. But the Bible goes further and says this. That men as the result of all this is quite helpless. That he's brought a curse upon himself and he can't escape it. He wants to, he'd like to, but he cannot. The cherubims and the flaming sword have been put there by God. Man's been trying to get back into Eden ever since he went out of it. That's the whole history of civilization. That's the whole meaning of philosophy and all your political thought and all the blueprints of your utopias at all times and in all places. Man trying to get back into paradise, but he cannot, he never will. The flaming sword, the cherubims of God. And the constant activity of the God of this world who encourages them to try to save themselves because he knows its futility and because he knows it's nothing but an expression still of men's self-assertion and his opposition to God. So the devil will encourage culture for all he's worth, for while men trust the culture, he'll never see the need of a savior. But the Bible shows us men thrust out of the garden, miserable and unhappy, frightened and alarmed, face to face with new problems that were not there before, thorns and thistles, illness and disease, problems on all hands. It's all come upon him. There he is, and he's helpless in it. He's immersed in it. It's worse than that. He is under judgment. He is under the judgment of God. He thought that he could forget God and that there'd be no risk involved. He didn't realize that the law of God is absolute. There it was at the beginning and it's still the same. Man as an individual and the whole world, according to the Bible, is under the judgment of God. And as I understand the Bible, what is happening in this present century is that God is manifesting his judgment. He manifested it there back in the garden, you see. They thought they could eat this and all would be well, not at all. God came. Men heard the voice of the Lord God in the garden in the cool of the evening. God has arrived on the scene and man cowers and is frightened. Judgment has come in and he's thrust out. And the judgments are pronounced. And oh, you read your Bible. Read through it, my friend. I'm pleading with you to do it. 
Read your Bible through in the way that I'm trying to give you an outline of this evening and you'll see how the judgments of God came. They came at the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of Jerusalem more than once in the history of that particular race. And so it has gone on. God in the heavens, when man rises up, God judges him. He built his tower of Babel. God smashed it. Scattered mankind. The division into races and languages and all these things. There's the history of the world. And you see how vital it is to recognize this? I either believe that my life is going on to death and after death, the judgment that I stand before God or else I believe, of course, that, well, when I come to die, that that's just the end, and that there's nothing more and nothing further. And that when a man dies, it's just like a beast dying, like a flower dying. He's been here, he's gone, and there it is. Can't you see how vital it is to be clear about this matter? Can't you see how it's going to affect the whole of your life and all your procedures and everything else? The Bible asserts, I say, that man, though he has turned his back against God, is still in relationship to God. And it's because of that I'm in this pulpit. It is because I believe that all who die in their sins not only go to judgment but go to hell that I'm here at all. If I believe that when we all die, that's just the end of it, we just dissolve our bodies, dissolve and become part of the earth, and that's all. There would be no need of a gospel. But it is appointed unto men, all men, once to die, and after death, the judgment. Death isn't the end. We go on and we go on to all eternity. The judgment, it's announced, it's pronounced. But thank God I end on this note. There is men and that is why things as they are. That's the explanation and the only explanation. Man, fallen, condemned, miserable, helpless, unhappy. But thank God, God's intervention, God coming into the wreckage, God visiting men and calling him by name and addressing him, God even at the moment of rebellion telling men, that he has a way to rescue him and to redeem him. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. The serpent, the arch enemy, the power that we cannot deal with, the God of this world that is too strong for us, can only be mastered by one and he's come. The seed of the woman Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
Christ, the Son of God, came into this very world, took on our human nature, entered into our very situation, has smote our enemy, has conquered the foe, and can set us free. He has gone to the judgment for us. He has borne our sins and their punishment in his own body on a cruel cross. God has dealt with them there and pardons us and our enemy is conquered and the way to paradise is open. And it's open for you. Your misery, your unhappiness, all your problems, all your needs arise from the fact of sin that you are in this terrible position face to face with God. That's the cause of all ill. And there is but one solution to the problem. It is the solution that God himself has provided in the person of his only begotten Son. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, which begins here and now. A knowledge of God, that you're right with God, that God's going to bless you and smile upon you and give you what you need and strengthen you and enable you to overcome your enemy and to take you through death to announce to you in the judgment that you're already pardoned and forgiven and to say to you, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter in to the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. My dear friend, that's your problem. That is the answer to your problem. Believe it. Accept it. Here and now. Go to that great almighty God. Beyond conception and understanding. Who existed from eternity. And who made all out of nothing. Go to him. Cast yourself before him. Acknowledge your ignorant, arrogant sinning against him. And thank him for his eternal love in sending his only son to rescue you and to redeem you by dying for you on Calvary's hill. And ask him to give you life and you. And he will. For I have the authority of his only son for saying, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. He cast out men in sin and rebellion. Go back to him in repentance. He will not cast you out. He will receive you and bless you. Amen.